This is episode number 299 with Head of Data Science and Machine Learning at Pluralsight, Michelle Keim. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. So here we go one final time for Data Science Go 2019. This podcast is brought to you by Data Science Go and it is happening. This event, this conference is happening this weekend. Literally in two days from now on Friday, we've got the workshops kicking off. I'm running one of those workshops on a visualization and presentation and we've got five other amazing workshops. Plus we've got the evening networking event on Friday. Then Saturday is the main event of Data Science Go with amazing speakers such as Adlan, Udeli Odebella, who you've heard on the podcast literally on the previous episode. Then we've got Ben Taylor and many, many more great speakers coming from companies ranging from Atlassian to Google, from Amazon to Salesforce and many, many more. Uh, then, of course, we've got uh, the networking on Saturday evening. Um, and then on Sunday, we've got another day of awesomeness with lots of amazing speakers again. So if you haven't gotten your ticket for Data Sense Go 2019, then this is your last chance. Head on over to www.datasciencego.com. Pick up your ticket there today and join us in San Diego. Join us and hundreds, literally hundreds of passionate, inspired, driven data scientists who are going to gather together to bring this community together, to share their experiences and grow together. You don't want to miss out on this. So get your tickets today at datasciencego.com and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And I hope you are ready for a very exciting ride today. Today we had Michelle Keim. I literally just got off the phone with her, who is the head of data science and machine learning at Pluralsight. And what we did on this podcast is we went through all of Michelle's experience all the way from um, her degrees, from her bachelor's and postgrad degrees, and then through the career steps that she's made in her career journey, which have been numerous. And this episode, to me, felt like a very intriguing and exciting TV show. Every time after every, you know, career path, I was left sitting on the edge of my seat thinking, wondering what's going to come next, what happened next to Michelle, where did she go from there? It was very exciting. And also, uh, each one of them had tons and tons of learning. So you will find out at this, in this podcast, you'll find out things like working remotely, how that feels and what it's all about in data science, failure and why everyone should lose their job at least once, uh, churn and segmentation. We'll talk about what they meant five, 10 years ago and what they mean now in terms of companies and how companies see them differently and what that means for data science, imposter syndrome and what to do with it when you feel like an imposter when you're applying for a role. Moving from centralized data science teams to integrated experts within the business. 
and leading people in the three key learnings that Michelle has taken away from her experience of leading people. And one more thing to mention is that Michelle is a speaker at our conference, Data Science Go 2019, which is happening actually this weekend. At the time of this podcast going out, it's happening this weekend on the 27th, 28th, and 29th of September. And if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you can find them at www.datasensego.com. So make sure to pick them up there today and meet us at Go, where you will get to meet Michelle and hear the rest of her story of how she's driving data science at Pluralsight, which is an online education company. Speaking of um, online education, which we're all very passionate about. So there we go. On that note, I'm super pumped for you to check out this episode. And without further ado, I bring to you Michelle Keim, Head of Data Science and Machine Learning at Pluralsight. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show. And today's guest is Michelle Keim from Pluralsight. Michelle, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic as well. And it's really, it was really cool just now to chat about how we're both working remotely today. Um, because oh, in general, we work remotely. I rarely meet people who, as a career, have structured their work remotely. So uh, Plural Side is based in Boston, is that right? And you're in San Diego. Yeah, we're we're actually headquartered out of the Salt Lake City area, but uh, one of our we have a major headquartered office out in Boston as well. And I am fortunate enough to be based out of San Diego. That that's really nice. And um, how how um, how did that happen originally? Were you always remote based, or is it just in plural side? Just at Pluralsight, and it's been a little bit of a journey. We um, started our data function here out of San Diego. Uh, we had a small group of us who basically kind of started doing data for Pluralsight, stood up our teams around data analytics, data engineering, um, data warehousing, and you know, from my side, data science. Uh-huh. Uh, and we were working together in a small co-working space and really grew that function here out of San Diego to the point where we uh, opened up an office um, and had a number of product development teams here in addition to our data functions. Um, And so, you know, uh, have fairly large presence still. And through the kind of the early days of Pluralsight, we did a number of acquisitions and ended up with uh, employees and offices kind of all over the the country and uh, realized that we really needed to uh, consolidate geographically to kind of align where we were at with the vision of where we wanted to go Mm -hmm. um, by 2020, which it's hard to believe we're almost there already Mm -hmm, and sort mm -hmm. of been doing that. Uh, you know, ended up settling on the geographies where we are now. But um, what that meant for us is it created a lot of opportunity for remote folks who had, you know, been with the company for a while. Well, that's that's exciting. And as you say, it's so crazy to think that we're almost 2020. I didn't think of this, but I was at a company in 2015, I think, start of 2015. And we were working on like the five-year vision, you know, the 2020 vision. And now we're already here, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. We were we have we have a 2020 vision, which we're now having to start, you know, checking against because it's almost here. <laughs> uh, do you find that it's like it's hard to keep up with this vision in the sense that technology has moved 
has technology moved in the direction that you thought it would move when you put the 2020 vision together or has it moved in a different direction? Like some things might not even be relevant anymore in that 2020 vision. I think we've learned some things along the way, but I think largely, you know, sort of given the mission and vision we had for the company as a whole, that we've been, we've remained true to that. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of the ways we've, um, you know, tactically accomplished it weren't what we had, it might've envisioned, you know, a couple or a few years back, but, but I think, you know, we've been pretty, pretty straight on to, you know, where we're going. Mm. Do you have an example of something in the 2020 vision that, you can share with us that maybe was accomplished or is going to be accomplished or was a learning? Yeah, I think one of the, um, you know, in terms of like where we were a few years back, uh, you were still pretty immature in the, in the space of really being a true um, online learning platform. And mm-hmm. you know, we were certainly have um, years of experience of delivering, you know, online courses um, and really being able to skill up technology professionals but we saw a greater need and opportunity to to do more and really seeing the need, not just with individual technologists, but with technology leaders and the massive transformations they were going through and what we could provide um, for them um, to support that um, in addition to kind of looking at it at an individual basis. And so that that's been an area where we've seen tremendous growth and opportunity and, and continue to kind of expand and, and really, um, you know, see a lot of opportunity to help uh, companies of all sizes be able to you know, bring their teams and the skill sets, uh, you know, up to where the tech stacks are going, going as well, and really becoming, um, you know, proficient in cloud where that, you know, for a lot of them where that's really, you know, the transformation that they're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, for what, so basically moving from just helping uh, individual technologists to helping companies and executives and uh, providing a whole suite. This is actually a good uh, segue into, could you give us a quick rundown of what what is Pluralsight? Like what is the company today? What do you kind of services do you provide and to to whom? Yeah, so we really are all about um, skills development. Um, our mission is to democratize skills um, learning across the world. And so what we do is we provide a platform to help folks to skill up, uh, whether that's on an individual basis or an entire organization. Um, so we're very mission driven to that to to that end. Um, so just really just given the given where we're at in this day and age and everything being technology-based and the things that it enables and the transformation that can bring to the world as a whole is really what we're after and figuring out how we get, you know, get that skills, not only to the folks who are already in those roles and trying to, you know, further skill up, but create um, equal access and opportunity um, around the world as well. Okay. And is there a specific, specific topics that you cover in terms of skills or is it like like Khan Academy, for example, they teach absolutely everything. Uh, we do not teach absolutely everything. Actually, we um, we focus on sort of our core set of expertise. So we kind of grew out of the um, software developer profession. But, you know, as technology has changed, our core business is around the technologies kind of in um, software development, you know, IT professionals, security, mm-hmm. um, data data professionals, uh, cloud, and so forth. So we're very much in that tech tech, tech space and applying it, you know, at in, in real-world problems. Okay, so you do teach uh, things like data science, AI, machine learning. 
we do. It's been a growing, growing area for us. Okay. Very, it must be very interesting for you because you're a data science leader yourself and you've seen the company go from when I'm assuming you weren't teaching data science and now you are teaching data science while you're doing data science in the company. Yes, so it's very exciting. It gives us the opportunity and it makes it more compelling for us to, you know, be able to use and try out our own product, which, uh, you know, helps basically really reinforce that cycle of what works well and, and what's what where we see opportunity to improve what we're delivering to our customers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's very like um, you must be you must feel like even your team must feel really proud that, OK, not only are we doing this stuff, we're also teaching it. Okay, well, Michelle, let's uh, move a bit to your journey. So tell, before we like discuss your current work at Pluralsight, and, um, which is very exciting and I'm really looking forward to it. But first, could you tell us a bit about how, how you got there? Like what, what kind of uh, background, what, what did you finish as a degree? And then through your roles, where did your career take you that led to Pluralsight? Yeah, I always have to chuckle because I didn't I didn't start out as a child knowing that I would grow up and do this. I had had not a clue. In fact, well, didn't even the role didn't even exist yeah. back when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But uh, what I did know, which is probably common to a lot of data scientists, is I just loved solving problems mm -hmm. um, when I was a kid. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was and I still I actually picked one up recently, but there's a magazine called Games Magazine. Mm -hmm. It's like this magazine you can go get on the magazine rack in the bookstore in mm -hmm. the airport that has all these logic problems and kind of weird types of crossword puzzles. And I love doing those when I was a kid. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I think there's a sort of inherent like piece of me that just likes that sort of logic and problem solving. And so I you know, kind of fell into the mathematical space, um, went through my undergrad and uh, just continued to love math. So that's what I chose to study with not a clue what I was going to do with it when mm -hmm. I was uh, when I was done <laughs> and kind of got to the end of that program. Still didn't really know. And I'd explored explored accounting and teaching and you know, none of it really quite resonated. So um, so I stalled mm -hmm. and I uh, went off to graduate school. I had. Um, taken a couple of statistics courses in my through my undergraduate program. And I really just liked the tangibleness of it. The mm -hmm. fact that there was like data and things that I could picture or even like touch and look at. Mm -hmm. And so that fascinated me. Um, and that's how I ended up um, uh, at the University of Washington and uh, doing a PhD in statistics, mm -hmm. um, which in hindsight was just like the most amazing accident because it has really le it led into a you know a career in applied statistics, which you know really just sort of transformed over the years into you know data mining and advanced analytics, and then you know into what we you know what we now call data science. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow, it's a uh, very um, interesting because. I kind of had the similar a similar experience. I went uh, to do physics just because I liked it. I had no idea what I'm going to do with it afterwards. <laughs> and then, like, and while studying it, I realized I, I still love it, but like, I'm not going to build a career in physics because it's, it goes like too narrow. You have to do a PhD for me anyway. Like, I, I want the more breadth. But nevertheless, that that uh, background allowed me to then, you know, augment it with finance and things like that and move into data science. Um, yeah, but very interesting that uh, you chose uh, mathematics and then it led you to statistics. That's very, and it's a very interesting comment as well that it has this tangible aspect to it. It's not just like theoretical math. I'm, I'm assuming that's what you're comparing to, like theoretical math, which 
which is great for advancing science and or you know theory of mathematics but does you can't really apply it in business right yeah okay it's just these yeah you could you got data you can plot it look at it explore it it's so it's its own thing yeah i i remember when i had a course uh, in my bachelor like i think in year four i had a course on statistics um and this one specific one i really didn't like it it was like it was these uh like anovers and things like that and i just like i don't i don't like this course and so on uh, i still did it but now and now that is data science is like oh okay now i see the value i guess i guess when it's individual it's like just statistics on its own for me like you say I didn't. I at that time I didn't see the tangible aspect to it. But once it becomes data science, it's much easier to see how it's applied in the real world. Now it's like it's a, it's an axiom that data science businesses need data science. So where did that take you? So now you have statistics uh, as a background. Um, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was actually, uh, again, I feel very grateful. I was lucky. I ended up taking a role at the Boeing company um, in Seattle. And I was it was a role that was sort of half research and half really applied statistics. And so it was a really great transition out of graduate school, which had been, I had been in a very um, research-centric department, um, able to work on very applied problems, but like that had been what I'd been doing for the previous years and to be able to take some of that research, continue it, and then even more so be able to think about how we applied it to some of the problems that the company was trying to solve, just provided a really nice transition kind of away from the, the academia kind of world that I've been in to, to really starting to understand business and how we could be, you know, leveraging some of these things to actually, you know, impact a company. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then I see from LinkedIn, you were in Boeing for three years. What, why did you change? Oh, why did I change? Well, the timing was such that there was the, the sort of lure of the dot-com boom that was happening, mm-hmm. um, around the time I'd hit three years, um, in combination with, um, I had colleagues who told me if I stayed at Boeing for five years, I would be there for the rest of my life. <laughs> it was sort of you, you, you either get out before five or you just, or you become a lifer, which I don't know if that's true anymore, but it was sort of, sort of funny because there were, def- there were some really fantastic individuals that I worked with that had been, you know, with the company for 30, 40 years, which you don't see anymore. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't necessarily see anything wrong with that, but there was so much exciting stuff going on out out in the world companies starting and I, I got lured to go try out this little startup, which did nothing, but, uh, we had a great time spent all, yeah, but we blew through the money and six months later I was, I was collecting unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. What a change. Oh, did you feel any like regret that you left Boeing at that point? Did you feel like, Oh, I should have done that. I should have stayed at Boeing. You know, I didn't actually, because it was such a great experience. It was so different and it and uh-huh. it really introduced me to like just a more rapid pace of doing things uh-huh. and more of a sense of urgency. Very different than being obviously in a large, such a large company as Boeing. So it was just a it was a really, really great experience. And I think it's probably what um has kept me excited about being in roles that are more um, kind of agile and uh, where I have more of an ability to have have an influence and really see what I'm doing and how it's how it's impacting um, you know the business that I'm working for. A lot of the time when I catch up with uh, our students on li- in real in real life, 
whether it's at events or meetups and things like that, like I face this common pattern of fear. People are fearful of like changing jobs, jumping, changing careers and so on. And that's why this story of how you went from Boeing, such a stable, big company where you could have had a 10, 20, 30 year successful career in future, you went to a startup, burned through the money and uh, that's it. Like you were collecting unemployment. It's really exciting to hear that you were not feeling regret. Like that, I think that's going to be very inspiring for people because even though you ended up in a situation which you didn't foresee and is probably very uncomfortable and, you know, like has very little certainty to it there you saw the bright side in it and the lessons you learned allowed you to i guess take your career even further so what happened next <laughs> yeah you're you're right i think there's something to be said for uh getting everyone should probably lose their job once in their career i think it's really good for you to experience that mm-hmm. and realize that you can kind of just get back at it there's so much opportunity out there mm-hmm. but um so i did it again i went to work for another small company um that you was got, in, you got addicted <laughs> i got addicted and, and and this one lasted longer i think i was at the next company for two or three years uh-huh. um and we were very early on in the space of trying to automate the process of developing predictive models um the founders had developed software that would sort of optimize for predictive performance across um, both variable selection and model type. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were trying to sell into companies to, you know, to buy, so- sell software. And at the time it was a really hard sell because small companies didn't want to buy software and big companies were already, you know, very well mm-hmm. embedded with statisticians using SAS to churn out models. And so there was sort of, we weren't really finding the, the niche where the software was, uh, you know, desired. Um, and so we kind of pivoted to more of a consultancy, mm-hmm. um, so leveraging our own product to deliver models to kind of more mid-tier uh, mm-hmm. companies. So we were doing a lot of work with multi-channel retailers, um, again, kind of right at the verge when people were starting to optimize email campaigns. But there was a lot of money um, in in mail, in you know hard hard postal mail through catalogs and other mailers, and making sure that you're targeting the right customer set that's most likely to continue continue to respond mm-hmm. um, and bring bring value you know, to the company through, through those channels. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what happened to that company? Did they burn down as well, or did you just get tired of working there? Thing. It burned down as well. But I, <laughs> the, day we got, the day we got pulled into the meeting room, I knew exactly what was going to go down. It's like, okay, I've been through this. <laughs> Pretty sure I'm going home today. <laughs> and, I know, and I know what to do next. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, uh, you were you probably were the only one in the room as well prepared. Everybody else was like, la, 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 la. I wonder what this meeting is about. Oh. I, think, I think there was probably a sense, but for me, it was a less of a less of an anxiety. I think I had seen it coming, and I and I knew that I knew sort of at that point knew that I knew how to go look for a job, and that it would it would all it would all work out. <laughs> wow, wow, that is so cool! Like you, uh, you after that, you were definitely like become a seasoned um, seasoned at failure, which is good, and which I want our listeners. I would love for our listeners to if they haven't had this experience themselves like learn from your experience or like take away as much as they can from this because being good at failure is like the number one skill for success paradoxically failure is like the biggest thing that you learn from Mm. (laughs) Uh, it in you know in large in you know in sort of in the meta sense but also even in the in the day-to-day yeah yeah for sure like um 
how how often do we fail every day you know at you know you try cooking a new dish are you going to be good at it the first time never you know like everything any sport you pick up anything totally agree all right this is like a really cool tv show tell us what happened next where'd you go from there <laughs> i guess this is the beauty of having a good chunk of my career under my belt right yeah yeah <laughs> stories to tell um I actually stuck, the next one stuck for a while. Mm -hmm. I, I went and spent about five years at T-Mobile. Uh, perhaps one of my, it was one of my favorite parts of my career. I really, really enjoyed it. It was a great company to work for. Um, very good culture. Uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing when I started. Uh, I and, and because I had been out of work, I wasn't being particularly particular mm -hmm. about what I did next. And I just saw an opportunity and it seemed sort of interesting. But I was um, hired and I wasn't quite sure what what I was being hired for. But there was this sense of we need we know we need someone like you to come and help us with this data stuff. We know we should be doing customer segmentation. Like we think <laughs> there's some areas where like we should be doing this. Uh -huh. And so it turns out it was a fantastic opportunity because I had an opportunity to sort of shape that and, and see that. And there was a ton of things that um, weren't being done yet that uh, had an opportunity to go tackle. Um, you know, you, you sort of hear, you know, again, not, not maybe our younger listeners, but back in that time frame, you know, a lot of the classic examples of modeling were around things like churn models. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I was all of a sudden found myself, you know, in a telecommunications company um, at a time when um, we were starting to kind of get to that, get to the end of the growth phase where it was all about customer acquisition. And then we were having to pivot and really start thinking about customer retention. Mm -hmm. And so I had an opportunity to, um, you know, uh, build out and work with um, you know, various folks throughout the build business to build out that first churn model and then see that into, into action and into you know, business, business um, use. So it was, it was really fun. Great. So you were like at the right place at the right time. Yep. So, but tell me this, how do you go from working in two failed startups to landing such a, one would say dream job at a large company like T-Mobile? Like, how did you apply for the jobs? How did they pick your resume, if you know? Or what did you say at the interviews when they asked you? So it looks like there's a common denominator in the failed startups you were in. You know, like, what's happening here? You know, like, the, with, with uh, that kind of experience, like, what do you say for you? What do you have to say for yourself that they give you the job or you get this job? Boy, I don't remember what I said for myself at the time. Uh, apparently, I said the right thing. That That one, I think, was probably... The, I think that was probably the only job in my career where I just applied for something and got a phone call off of mm -hmm. my resume. Everything mm -hmm. else I've gone after has been through, you know, um, you know, kind of after that first first role at Boeing has really had really been more about me going out and seeing what was out there and figuring out seeing seeing what companies were doing things that looked interesting and then kind of finding a way to you know uh, get an introductory conversation but i remember t-mobile was literally i had just seen a job posting that sounded interesting and somehow my background must have aligned or mm. uh with you know where they were at the time because I, I know you know there you have sort of i know we all at some point in our careers get that sort of imposter syndrome of like i'm not really qualified to do this job and i definitely had it at the time because it was, it was, I was stepping into a leadership role too, which I had never done. I was brought on board and had two employees out of the gate and I'd never led people. And, 
you know, that was definitely a, definitely a kind of thrown to the fire learning experience on, on that. But, um, uh, yeah, again, just right place, right time, I guess, right set of skills for, for the, for the role. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and good on T-Mobile. That's, I guess they made a, a fantastic choice putting you into a, into a leading role now, like, uh, look where you are now. And obviously somehow they m- maybe had sense that you have these, like a, a knack for being a leader. And so you started with two people there. Did the team grow while you were there? Five years, right? You were T-Mobile for five Yeah, and a half. it was five years. So we grew quite a bit. I don't think we grew, I think we grew to maybe a half a dozen uh-huh. folks mm-hmm. um, by the time I left. I can't remember actually exactly exactly the size, but um, we had gotten to the point where we were we were still in that place of being a centralized team, kind of supporting the organization, doing more modeling work, um, doing more um, you know kind of just that sort of decision support type of analytics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we had gone deeper with the customer segmentation type of modeling as well, mm-hmm. looking at lifetime value. Those those sorts of things were kind of hot at the time. They. We're hot at the time. Are they still hot now, or has customer churn have customer churn models or uh, segmentation models or approaches to these problems? Have they changed since then? How well it's been? Or they most likely have. Like it's been over ten years. Uh, how have yeah. they changed? It was funny because the next couple of roles I had, they were. It wasn't the same businesses or the same. Um, it wasn't telecommunications anymore, but when you get into, you know, these uh, essentially, you know, service oriented businesses, uh, there's always a component of retention. That's mm-hmm. it. It's even in my current role today. I mean, that's it's still holds true that it's it's easier to retain a customer than to go acquire a new one. And so you know, I had a couple of roles later where the same types of different different data, different, you know, a um, little bit different application, but very, very similar um, type of question underneath of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you would say that uh, these problems you were solving at T-Mobile back then, they're still relevant and companies would still use the same approaches to solve them? Questions are still relevant. I think we have a lot more um, predictive modeling techniques at hand now mm-hmm. that we can apply to them and a you know, better ability with you know to computationally optimize for what we're trying to do. And I think we know more now and... Um, a couple of, I think, things that have changed is we have more methodology now that enables us to help make those models explainable. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, back when we started, I remember even if I go back to T-Mobile, uh, there was a very high level of importance being placed on ensuring that we were getting the right, um, you know, factors and drivers into the model so that the business would have confidence in the model itself before they would just go out and apply it. That the, you know, the black box idea was, you know, unacceptable. And I think it continues to be something that we have to to pay attention to, but, you know, there's more, more, so much has um, developed over the years in terms of our ability to, to do that and not have to rely on, you know, the trade-off between, you know, perhaps some loss in predictive performance of a decision tree, but still having explainability and mm-hmm. so not kind of treating those as two, two separate parts of the problem mm-hmm. um, has been an advancement there. Um, I had a, trying to think there was another, kind of lost my thought on the second I, one, but that that's definitely been one where I've seen, seen some change. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess also how companies approach customer relationships has changed as well. That before, it 
was le- it was more kind of a, you know get a lot of customers and um, you know put your product ahead first. That's that's the most important thing, and then find people like it. Now now it's more customers come first. Customers are like, all right, how do we serve people best? And I I I guess it has like that change in mentality that rather than we have a great product go out and sell it to we have great customers let's find a best best ways we can serve them that shift in psychology of business has also affected uh, the the approaches we take to actually churn modeling or uh, segmentation and things like that it's just this overarching thing would you agree or do you think it's something different in this space no there's a there's a huge component to it and I'll, I'll contrast a little bit like back when we were modeling you know doing churn modeling at t-mobile it was it was new to us but you know what we were trying to do was sort of automate who we should who we should contact and you know try to save uh, kind of kind of it's a little bit of a side story but the funny thing was that we learned was and, and this will be of no surprise to anyone is you don't want to contact people because we were looking at people who were, this is back in the days of contracts who were mm-hmm. coming up on end of contracts and who was like most likely to, to churn off at the end of their contract. And what we learned was that if we, you know, had an outreach to them, that essentially was the reminder call that their contract was up and we were actually <laughs> increasing churn. <laughs> and so, and so what we found was we almost had to, we basically flipped how we were approaching the problem. It was more about who should we not contact? Mm-hmm. Who should we make sure we don't dial up? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's still this, like, it's not just the modeling, it's, it's how do you apply it? And, and I think to your point around, like, um, the customer aspect of it, I went through and talk about like failure. I went through a, a failure. I felt like in my time here at Pluralsight, where again, I kind of started with this company at a very early stage. And when I started, no one was quite sure exactly what they wanted me to do, which, which was fine but one of the the things that out of the gate i was you know was suggested that i might look at was was building a retention model and looking at our um our business customers and how could we help um you know our sales team understand you know which ones were you know potentially at risk for for not renewing uh-huh. Um, and so I went, you know, I spent time with the business folks. I thought I understood the, the underlying data and how it related to the business and what it did and went through the modeling exercise. But the, the failure was really understanding what the use case for that model was. So we had a model output and, you know, the no one wanted, no one was interested in a model at the time. Like there, they, they, to your point, like there was a very hands-on touch. It was, I'm going to need to talk to everyone. Like I have a relationship with these people. I'm more of what I need to understand is what's going on with them. Uh-huh. If they are at risk, like what is the underlying factor? How do I get to the heart at, you know, what I need to converse with them about, as opposed to just tell me, tell me who's at risk. Uh, okay. So you were, the model was outputting who they need to talk to, but they actually needed to talk to anyone anyway, right? Or they had a sense as to, they had a, you know, they'd had that human factor sense already because oh, they, had, okay. you know, they had some of these relationships and they had some of the intuition. So they needed data to support a different aspect of the problem. Um, maybe they would use it to sort of prioritize their time, but really uh, they wanted to know, you know, why. If, if, if I surfaced this as a high risk, um customer uh, why the explainability part basically that's what they yep. needed uh-huh. and you were you able to supply that 
we did eventually get to that, but it took it took kind of a reset on it of really getting in with the individuals who were in that part of the business and understanding the work mm-hmm. that they were doing um, on a day to day basis and you know where data could come help. So it kind of was a, almost like a you know hitting the reset button and rethinking what the problem really was there. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great example of failure. That's uh, such a common thing that in the data science process, that first initial step of identifying the problem and actually either quantifying it or describing it in extreme detail and putting that down in writing with the stakeholders. That's a step that a lot of people miss and they just like right jump into, okay, let's clean the data, let's analyze the data, model things, and visualize and present, right? But like if you haven't done the first part, like you don't know exactly what problem you're solving, uh, you, that the rest of that process might might be in vain and you'll end up with something that people don't don't actually use, which which can be heart wrenching as well. Like if you spend like a month working on something, that's yeah. that's like the, the the last thing a data scientist wants is to at least for most of us is that's a lot of why we're in these roles is we wanna we wanna see the work having having an impact and being useful to someone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so that was T-Mobile five years. The story goes on. We've got we've got three more the story seasons. Does go on. It does. I, <laughs> what happened uh, then? So I, well, I moved to California. As I mm. said, I'm down here in San Diego. I um, where were you before? My family. I was uh, in Seattle, so I ended mm. up in Seattle for graduate school, mm-hmm. and then all of these other you know roles were uh, Seattle-based companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then I had kids, and I you know really wanted to be closer to my parents and my siblings, and so uh, relocated down here to San Diego and had to kind of look start from scratch, looking for work in a in a geography I wasn't particularly familiar with you know the professional environment and didn't have um didn't have contacts down here really yet so so kind of sort of kind of hit the reset button and um ended up finding a small company um again through that process of just looking at looking at who's doing things with data and where might there be a need um san diego's an interesting market because we're not one of the cities where you get to see a lot of um, you know large companies with headquarters, and you kind of know where the major employers are. It's a little little tends to be a little trickier than that. And so I ended up finding this company who was um, uh, looking at analyzing uh, energy data, so data coming um, out of meters from uh, utility companies, mm-hmm. gas and electric. And the, the core of the business was really about um, revenue assurance and uh, working with utilities and helping them identify potentially lost revenue either through um, through you know fraudulent behavior, and meter tampering, or just through meter failure and mm-hmm. being able to identify those. And they had um, developed a number of you know, they called them models, but they were they were kind of algorithms uh, to to find anomalies in patterns of you know the data coming out of you know gas and electric meters and being able to then prioritize for the utility companies where there was a strong case that something was up you know on site and then they would be able to send send someone out to go and you know evaluate that mm-hmm. um, and see what might be going on you know at the meter um, and that sort of was at the time where we were moving more into the smart meter technology as well. And so we were starting to look at, you know, the data that was coming out of residential smart meters, um, you know, with measurements coming, you know, at frequent, I think, you know, fif- you know 15 minute intervals at the time. And how could we help um, identify potentially what um, what appliances are in the home? One of the, the big applications in, in San Diego, because, you know, we have 
we have, you know, we get a lot of heat waves and then you have to worry about, you know, blackouts and so forth. And how do you manage that energy demand? Um, so we were trying, and there's a lot of pools. And so people who have pools in a hot climate have to run pool pumps. Uh-huh. And so they, that's a high, high load. And so, you know, trying, being able to identify where those existed at and for utility companies to be able to incent or, or, you know, request that, um, in, you know, uh, homeowners run those at off-peak hours um, was, you know, something they wanted to be able to, to target at the time. So it was a kind of an interesting problem to dig into to that data. It was very different than than anything I had kind of worked on mm-hmm. on prior. It's very interesting. Okay, okay. And so did you, what, what were the results? Were you able to create that model? We did. By the time I left, we kind of were very early phase, had had some success um, with with pool pumps, we were looking for some other high loads as well. Less common, it's less common um, here, but electric dryers are a high load as well. Yeah. And so we were kind of exploring some of these things and looking and you know trying to assess the business opportunity at the same time. So it was a new new space for the company as in terms of uh, you know is this something that was a sellable product even if we we could do that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so uh, yeah, it was it was very interesting. So you were able to detect areas that have pool pumps based on the solely on the load that you're seeing in the grid. Yes, so you would see certain certain patterns. You would start to detect kind of in that in that um, wow. kind of profile of the electric usage. That's that's so cool. That's like data science <laughs> in, investigating. That, that's just like wow. That's that's really cool. Like finding physical objects or elements about people's lifestyles through a byproduct like the electric output that or electric utilization all right very interesting um and so when you joined that so this was this a small company because t-mobile is a very large company did you go back to your small company it was it was i think it was around maybe 40 50 people at the time yeah um, which ended up being why why I left. You know, mm-hmm. the, the company was um, was small and struggling a bit, and so it was you know financially becoming challenging for mm-hmm. them to kind of move forward in some of these more innovative areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up moving on, um, and, and that was sort of the start of where I spent found my space more in kind of the education world, and uh, ended up working for a company called Bridgepoint Education, mm-hmm. uh, this parent company for a couple of online um, higher ed for profit universities. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, so working on, you know, kind of got into that that area. So, um, did you was this leadership role again? This one was back in a leadership role, and it was again, it was kind of fit the fit the model of you know, couple they'd they'd hired a couple of um, people to start to do data science. I, I'm not even sure if we called it data science at the time. Do advanced analytics, mm-hmm. um, and we're looking for a leader, and so I stepped in very early there as well um, to kind of build and lead and grow a team. Um, uh-huh. in that organization. Okay. All right. And how did that go? What What was your uh, biggest learning? Like on LinkedIn, I can see that you uh, changed a few roles inside. You went from quantitative analytics manager to director of advanced analytics to uh, AVP. What does AVP stand for? AV, uh, what was it? I think it's like an associate I don't remember. It was whatever Associate the internal title was. Associate vice president? Yeah something, like, yeah, something like that. Okay. However, their internal um, titling worked. Okay. I think that kind of just represented sort of the the growth in, you know, that we had in the team and the span of the work that, um, you know, that we were doing at the time. Uh-huh. Okay. 
So what was the like the biggest? <laughs> Let's probably start with the biggest failure. You seem to be very, yes, very fine, good at them. Yeah. So what what was the biggest failure, and what was the biggest learning that you had there? Oh, that's a good one. Um, probably the biggest learning, and I don't know if it was a learning so much as a as a frustration or mm -hmm. just an experience that I had, but there was. Um, because we had sort of built, we had been doing a lot of really great projects and really demonstrating what you could do with data. We started to get more attention from the CEO and the executive suite. Mm -hmm. And he saw that he could start asking questions that maybe we could answer with data. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up getting asked to do a lot of special projects. And these special projects tended to re revolve around helping to figure out why something bad had happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm oversimplifying that, but, you know, there were things that had been going on in the business and helping to truly understand, you know, what might have caused, you know, in the, I can't remember, uh, I think suspect there was, you know, part of it again was kind of around retention because yeah. of the way the, the model worked and, you know, we weren't retaining students at the same level in certain sectors and why was that? And so the, the sort of the, the challenge with that is all of these types of analysis are asking you to look at data in retrospect and you're trying to figure out how the heck do you control for all of the different things that had been going on and really be able to pinpoint any single thing mm -hmm. while dealing with an audience that wants an answer, but yet like from a data and statistical perspective, you, you just really can't provide one. And so you're trying to look at it from every single angle um, and sort of teach about what's possible with data and also how you can answer these questions in the future and, and starting to think about, you know, testing different things and how do, how do you eliminate, you know, all of that, all of those confounding factors to be able to answer your questions. Um, so I guess for, for me, the, the learning of that was just, you know, the, the challenge of being able to communicate and be realistic about, you know, what, what data can and can't do. Okay. And how did, how did you communicate that to the CEO that, this is not a question that data can answer for you. <laughs> uh, directly and with, you know, providing as much information as you can and being able to uh, get at what you can say, uh -huh. but being very clear at what you can't. Because when you get in those situations, you know, sometimes some of the things that we do, particularly as it relates to ana analytics and trying to answer questions, you may or may not have, you know, major decisions being made off of them. But in some of these scenarios where you've got an executive who really wants to lean on data to be able to answer a question, you want to feel really confident in not only what you're telling them, but in being sure that the message that they're taking away from that actually aligns with the message you're trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And a lot of time people fall into the trap, especially when communicating with CEOs, that they don't want to deliver bad news, right? So that the, for instance, this problem cannot be addressed through data. There's something like uh, external or something else that's happening. Like how, how do you go about, you know, preparing somebody for that? This is, then you're going to tell them not what they want to hear. <laughs> uh, be prepared. It is stressful. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a stressful time because we were not only were we being asked these questions, we were being asked to answer them under very tight, tight timelines as well. And so, um, I think one of the, the, the things that's really important is in how you present the results. And it was really a exercise in ensuring that 
the data presentation, the format of the charts, the wording of you know what you were saying or that you could conclude from the chart that required a lot of very thoughtful, thoughtful care. Um, and so, so I think it's I think you know the advice there is is you can't produce pages and pages of an analysis. You really have to figure out how do you boil this down to the key thing. What is the key thing I learned, and how do I take that key message and now figure out how I how I tell that story um, with the data that I've seen that supports it? Mm -hmm. Okay, totally agree. Yeah, you want to, especially with executives, you want to make it very short. Even bad or good news, it's got to be short. And <laughs> I like what you said that you not only you need to communicate the right things, but also you need to make sure the things they're taking away. You know, like at least twenty percent of information is lost in the process of communication, maybe more. So you gotta mm -hmm. make sure, like, are they getting the keys, key insights? All right, so we're up, up to the final season of this epic saga. From Bridgepoint Education, you moved to Pluralsight. How did that happen? That happened through um, a colleague, actually. So I had a colleague who had, um, I'd been working with at Bridgepoint, um, and he was, you know, responsible for uh, some, uh, the data analytics function there and had uh, also been teaching courses for Pluralsight as mm. an author. Mm. Um, and so he had that connection and, you know, he, he's got his own story, so I won't try and retell it, but, you know, at the end of the day, he ended up, you know, uh, connecting with the CEO and sort of, they found sort of a recognition that there was a mutual, mutually found this, found this need in the company to start doing more with data. There was just so much opportunity being lost in terms of, you know, the analytics that they didn't have visibility to. And so, so he, you know, you know, created for himself a role of standing up our data function. Um, and in doing that, um, reached out to me and a couple of other folks, um, you know, that we'd had the opportunity to work with in the past and kind of started with a small group of a half a dozen of us, uh, you know, from scratch, figuring out how do we go build a data warehouse? How do we stand up, um, you know, our analytics? Let's, you know, getting Tableau into the organization. What do we want to do with data science? Uh, what are the questions we can start tackling on that side front and first and and sort of grew from grew from there. Okay. And so when you joined Pluralsight, how many uh, people were in your team? Uh, I was no team. It was team of me. <laughs> oh, okay, so back back to the old school days, right? You went from leader to uh, IC. That's the word, individual contributor. So, and then what happened? Like now, how big is your team now? So my team is actually small again because we've actually grown so much that we've reorganized how we're structured. And so I um, actually have a small team of four uh, principals in the data space, mm -hmm. and they serve as um, uh, leaders and mentors um, and kind of expert coworkers to um, a larger set of machine learning engineers and data scientists that are then embedded um, in our organization. And I actually don't know total count how many we are now. Um, probably in the company, we're probably in the twenty to thirty range. Uh -huh. Folks doing some some form of kind of data science and, and machine learning. So it's it's been a massive massive um, shift from where we were five years ago. Okay, so you you move. So you, the way it's structured is you have four principals reporting to you, and then you have these pockets of data scientists around the organization. So rather than having a centralized data science unit or function, you have data science across the board. Is that right? 
Yeah, well, yes and no. So we actually have an interesting structure where we have actually two um, two areas where we're doing data science. So we have a data science team that is centralized in our finance organization doing strategic decision support. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we grew, I actually moved over into our uh, experience organization. So I'm fully focused on everything now about data science and machine learning within our product um, oh, okay. experience and everything that leads leads into that. Um, so, you know, we had, I think you know before we got on the line, we talked a lot about why five why five years has been no problem to stick around. It's been so much change in the role and about. I think maybe a year and a half, two years ago, you know, we were really doing almost nothing from a data science machine learning perspective in our product just because of where we were at from a maturity standpoint. Mm-hmm. And we we saw and had a vision for, you know, where we wanted to go with that. So I ended up uh, you know, pivoting and creating focus um, and starting to essentially kind of almost back to scratch again, basically standing up and growing, you know, the data science machine learning function explicitly within our experience organization. So it's within that that organization, which is, I think we're over 500 employees, you know, out of the company now, just in that organization. Um, and so we, about six months ago, moved from being centralized in the experience organization to this sort of new model with these uh, principles. So we're we're um, we're we're only about six months into that and still kind of learning learning and figuring out uh, what's working what's working well with that and what um, adjustments we need to make as well. Okay, so five months, six months ago, what what did it look like six months ago? Six months ago, we were about a dozen data science and machine learning engineers in experience organizations, centralized in the organization. So, you know, folks were basically consulting out to different product experience teams, um, mm-hmm. and kind of dipping in and in and in and out. Uh, and you know, and I, I'm sure not news to to you or your listeners, but there's a there's good and bads with that model, right? Like there's definitely a lot of cohesion and flexibility that comes with that centralization, yeah. but you also end up with this sort of not, you never quite get that proximity to the mm-hmm. problems you're trying to solve in that way, or this um, sort of maybe full sense of ownership for them. Uh-huh. And so flipping this model has, we've been trying to keep both the, the you know, both the good aspects of the centralization by having, you know, this, this team of principals sort of looking at the organization more holistically and supporting them while still having individual contributors, you know, in the work with teams in specific um, product areas. Okay. So you just took those people that are in your team, 12 of them, and like eight of them, you like moved around the business and said, all right, now you're in this team, you know, like team A, you're in team B, you're, you're attached to this specific team. And so now you're going to be working, like we'll be helping you, but you're going to be mostly sitting with them. Is that, is that how it went? Yeah, pretty much. That's so cool. I've never, like, I've heard, like, I, I've heard that there's two different parts and ways of doing a centralized data science team or uh, separated like uh, integrated data scientists in, in uh, separate teams, but I've never heard of a company of this scale move just like oh from okay we have a centralized team now let's let's get these people integrated into the business. What what's what are some of the like learnings that you're seeing or like benefits that you're seeing in these six months? Is it like obviously there's some challenges, but is it was it the right decision? I, I actually don't know if it was the right decision. It was part of a larger organizational design. So we've designed this way across all of our disciplines, including engineering and product design and product management. Um, 
And so I think a lot of things have worked well. It's it's definitely given more um, autonomy and more ability to be kind of agile to the teams being able to, in that they have data scientists and machine learning engineers as part of the team. They don't have to ask for them or negotiate, you know, with someone else to get them. Mm -hmm. And they do have these individuals who are, you know, fully embedded and understanding of the problem space and talking on a day-to-day basis with, you know, individuals in the team that are coming from other disciplines. There's definitely a closer, closer relationship there. Okay. Um, you know, some of the things we've been learning have just been more around, you know, uh, particularly for the principals, it's been it's been a lot about time management and how do I figure out where which of these teams needs mo- my help the most right now? And how do I really uh, make sure that I'm, you know, where I need to be and spending my time on the right things? Okay. All right. Sounds like uh, you, you'll still see in the coming months how, yeah, how this so. yes. plays out. Okay. Um, and... What I'd like also to know is you being a leader in multiple of the roles that you've been in, what what is what is it like to lead a team of data scientists of like creating creating this data science function in a business, maintaining it and leading people? What are some of the key insights that you can share with our listeners who are maybe considering becoming data science leaders, are are now practitioners or ICs, individual contributors and are considering becoming leaders further down in their career. What what are some of the insights you can share with us? Oh boy, um, yeah. Start with the challenges. I think one of the that is maybe speaking specifically to the transition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think depending on where you're at and the size of the team you're working with, uh, there is opportunity to sort of there can be opportunity to play a dual role where you're a, kind of a player coach and you actually. Um, you know, have the ability to be in the work and doing work in addition to leading people. Uh-huh. And I've, I've sort of sat in that space for a period of time. But if a, if you're in a role that's growing, your ability to do that won't be sustainable over time. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you sort of have to have that heart to heart with yourself of, do I want to be a people leader, you know, and a strategic leader in the organization? Or do I really like doing the work, uh-huh. um, because it's hard to do both. Uh, and for me, I've been through that a couple of times and pivoted back. And it's only been perhaps in this role where I finally realized, like, I like doing this. There's, there's actually aspects to it that really resonate well with me, but that's, that's me personally. And I, you know, it's not, not everyone, not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, so I guess that'd be the first thing. It's just really getting, getting true with yourself and figuring out, you know, you know, like we, mm-hmm. like we talked about before the show, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Um, uh, I don't know what else, I guess the funny thing is that I see in, see in it is people leading and working with people is almost in itself an analytical problem. I actually really enjoy getting to know people, understanding them as human beings, but also them as data scientists, um, machine learning engineers, and what motivates them, what makes them tick, what things are they really great at, and how do we, you know, help, you know, make sure that they're really directing, you know, their skills where they can have the biggest impact, but sort of simultaneously, you know, understanding both where you, where they have um, opportunity to grow and where they want to grow. Uh And, and being able to kind of provide those opportunities in, in parallel. 
Mm-hmm. So it's almost a little bit of a problem solving exercise in and of itself. And so I, I, I just, I enjoy that and I enjoy the, the people part of it a lot. Okay, gotcha. So having that heart to heart with yourself and understanding if you want to lead or uh, and become more of a people person or if you want to continue the technical aspect of your career. Uh, also, number two was understanding people and understanding them as like an analytic, is, is a challenge in itself, understanding them as humans, as uh, contributors, as data scientists. Is there a third one? Is there a third or learning or share to round it up? That's right. There should always be three, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, probably the third learning, I guess, if I had to kind of round out the trifecta is the, is the aspect of um, just your, the, the part of the role that is really building the culture in the business that mm. you're working with mm-hmm. so that the successful too because it's not just the managing the people and the work um it's ensuring that you're working on the right things and that those things are going to have impact and that um the you know the the teams or organ parts of the organization that are going to be utilizing that um understand it Uh so there's just this whole aspect around it of of just education and it it could be frustrating sometimes particularly if you're in a company that's growing and in some of the cases i've been i was probably there sooner than they were ready for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so really helping to helping to um you know develop that uh, in the organization uh, at the same time Mm -hmm. okay well i'm i'm really uh, it's a shame that we've we've ru- we're running out of time because I would really like to talk about like all these you know how you went about making that change specifically at plural plural site and um you know what were the challenges and what were the um how you overcame came those things uh, maybe maybe we can one day have a, a second podcast where we can dive specifically into that because it feels like there's a lot of things there um but what I wanted to do is, first of all, thank you, a huge thank you for all, you know, running down through your whole experience. It was, it was really exciting to go through these steps and uh, of your career and also understanding all the learnings. There's been plenty of learnings and takeaways that uh, you've shared today. Um, what I would like to do before we finish up, though, is um, shift gears a little bit and talk about data science go because and give our listeners who are coming to the conference a, a quick uh, teaser or preview uh this episode is actually going to go out like literally a few days before you're going to be presenting at data science go so um what how do you feel about coming to data science go and what are you going to be talking about there ah, i'm super excited it's it, well partly excited because it's the first chance i've had to uh, attend a conference in my hometown. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm looking forward to you know, folks getting to come to San Diego and, and share, in, share in the city that I live in and love. Um, but I'm really excited just for the opportunity to meet and talk with people um, both. You know, I, I really enjoy the aspect of my role of you know, mentoring folks um, who are maybe going through you know, similar parts of their career that I've gotten under my belt, uh, even the ones around, you know, being out of work and trying to figure out what to do next. So um, love just talking to people. So I'm looking, looking forward to that. Um, in terms of my talk, I think, you know, really kind of centering around 
um, sort of these ex you know, multiple experiences that we've talked about where I've had in really starting from scratch and, and you know, bringing data science into a company. Um, I think as we discovered here, there's there's hours upon hours to, to that. So really kind of focusing on you know the aspects of actually just building out that function and and growing and leading leading teams is what we'll we'll dig into the you know the limited amount of time that we'll have in the session at the conference. Oh, fantastic! So it's basically going to be a great continuation of the podcast, basically. I, well, I hope so. <laughs> Listen to the podcast, come to the conference, and continue from there. That's awesome. Uh, and then ask any questions afterwards. You know. Pester Michelle during lunchtime or um, at the drinks and the dinner time. Okay, fantastic. All right. Well, Michelle, uh, before I do let you go, can you please share with us how can our listeners contact you if they have any questions? You mentioned before the podcast that Plural Side is always hiring. I know maybe people will be interested to learn about that. What are some of the best ways to contact you, find out more about Plural Side, follow you in your career? Probably the easiest thing is just to come come find me on LinkedIn, uh, most central place for all of that. Mm -hmm. I agree, completely agree. Michelle uh, Kaim, and we'll share your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. And <clears throat> on that note, one final question for you uh, today is, what is a book that you can recommend to our listeners that, to help with their careers or even just life journeys, something that's impacted you? Oh, goodness, I have so many. Um so I guess I'll give the general response would be read anything you can about the domain space in which you're working. So I'm currently have found myself in product development. So I've been doing a lot of reading about product development and how that, how that works. But uh, I guess maybe to be a little closer to home to, to data science and I'll, I'll recommend it, even though I'm only partway through, I'm currently reading um, the weapons of math destruction by Kathy O'Neill, mm. which sort of gets into the ethics of modeling um, so far, there's some really interesting, interesting stuff in there. And I think it's probably, you know, something that we should all be thinking about, you know, since this, this is a space we're working in is what is the impact of the things that we're building and the work that we're doing. Okay, fantastic. That book's actually been recommended a few times. Uh, are you enjoying it? Yeah, um, I'm only a couple of chapters in, but um, it's been, it's been really great to just sort of see where it's going so far. Who recommended it to you? Actually, it's funny. We um, we're doing a book club um, oh, at work, and nice. so we're kind of doing a little bit of working through the book and coupling that with um, you know some different presenters coming in and, and talking about different aspects of kind of ethics as well. So I'm um, getting to kind of look at it and you know with others at the same time. Okay, gotcha. Um, ethics of what? Ethics of books or uh, data science and machine learning? More about the ethics of what we're building, both you know from a machine learning standpoint oh. and how that has the potential to impact folks. Okay, gotcha. All right, there we go. Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Once again, Michelle, thank you so much. Totally enjoyed this conversation. Flew by so quick, didn't even notice. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your insight. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and I'll see you at Data Science Go. Like for us right now, it's a few weeks, but when this comes out, like in a few days. So see you soon. Great, looking forward to it. So there we have it. That was Michelle Keim, Head of Data Science and Machine Learning at Pluralsight. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Totally, I totally, totally loved talking to Michelle. What a journey, what a story of somebody who started out in data science and made her way through all these different 
career steps, moving from small companies to big companies, from individual contributor roles to leader roles, to back to IC, back to leader, and all the learnings. What amazing learnings Michelle shared with us. Um, my probably biggest, the most interesting thing for me was this uh, moving from a centralized data science team to an a team of integrated experts throughout the business. I've never seen that before, as mentioned on the podcast, and uh, I would love to learn more about how this is going to play out for Pluralsight. Very, very interesting move. And also demonstrates that there are indeed these two types of ways, two ways that you can organize a data science team, either centralized or either integrated experts throughout different divisions of the business. And on that note, if you'd like to meet Michelle and hear the rest of her story, then come join us at Data Science Go this weekend. We are happening in uh, San Diego in the Hilton Bayfront, 27, 28, 29 September. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you can still get them at www.datasciencego.com and we'd love to see you there. And uh, as always, the uh, notes for this podcast are available at superdatascience.com slash 299. We're almost at 300. How crazy is that? It's uh, once again, the episode number is superdatascience.com slash 299. And there you can get the transcript for this episode, any materials that we mentioned in the podcast, as well as the URL for Michelle's LinkedIn, where you can, and I highly encourage you to connect with Michelle. And there we go. That's the end of today's session. I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet to Data Science Go, you can find them at www.datasciencego.com. And I look forward to seeing you there. And until next time, happy analyzing. <laughs>